Welcome to UCI Law Talks, presenting bold perspectives on law from the University of California, Irvine School of Law. Join the conversation on Twitter at UCI Law, hashtag UCI Law Talks. Hello and welcome. I'm Colleen Terracani for UCI Law Talks. Today, we are discussing the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Scalia over President's Day weekend and the complexities now presented for the Supreme Court and the upcoming election. And we have a wealth of intellectual riches here at the University of California Irvine School of Law on all things Supreme Court related and election law related. I'm delighted that both Erwin Chemerinsky and Rick Hassan could join me today in our podcast studio. Erwin Chemerinsky is the Dean of UCI Law and a Distinguished Professor of Law and the Raymond Pryke Professor of First Amendment Law. He is the leading scholar on constitutional law, the Supreme Court, and the author of eight books, including The Case Against the Supreme Court, published in fall of 2014. Rick Hassan is Chancellor's Professor of Law and Political Science at UCI Law. He is the leading scholar on election law, and his latest book, just published in January of 2016, is Plutocrats United, Campaign Money, the Supreme Court, and the Distortion of American Elections. Hi, this is Rick Hassan of UCI School of Law, and I'm sitting down with Erwin Chemerinsky, the Dean of the School of Law, and we're going to have a conversation about the sudden death of Supreme Court Justice Antonin Scalia. We're sitting down just a few days after that death, which really, I think, shocked the legal world, even though he was uh, 79 years old. No one knew that he was uh, in any kind of poor health, and, and, and any time a justice leaves the Supreme Court, it's kind of a shock to the system. Erwin, what, were, what are your thoughts about his legacy and uh, about uh, just what he meant to the Supreme Court? I don't think we'll be able to assess his legacy for years or even decades. A lot of that's going to depend on who replaces him and who fills other vacancies that are likely to occur in the near future. But we can certainly assess his impact over the last 30 years. He was a powerful conservative voice, a consistent conservative vote. In many areas, he was in the majority in changing the law. For instance, he was in the majority and wrote the opinion with regard to the Second Amendment. For the first time, the Supreme Court found a constitutional right for gun owners. He was in the majority in the Citizens United case, saying corporations have the right to spend unlimited amounts of money in elections. He was in the majority in a series of cases, all of which limited federal law and expanded states' rights. In other areas, he was less successful. For his strong objections, the Supreme Court found gay rights and a right to marriage equality. He never succeeded in having Roe versus Wade overruled. He never succeeded in eliminating the wall that separates church and state. Well, one of the things that's, I think, uh, most interesting about his set of opinions uh, is how he had, uh, to some extent, ruled for criminal defendants. How do you assess that legacy? Because that seems to be one place where he maybe did not toe the conservative line the way that some other justices might have. Justice Scalia had a more mixed record with regard to criminal law, but overall it was still a conservative record. He was the foremost advocate for eliminating the exclusionary rule. This is the remedy for Fourth Amendment violations when the police engage in a legal search or seizure where the evidence can't be used in court. Justice Scalia repeatedly said he wanted it to be eliminated. He was willing to allow Congress by statute to overrule Miranda versus Arizona so no longer would police have to give the warnings. He was always in the majority in limiting habeas corpus. 
and the ability of individuals who claim they were wrongly convicted to get to federal court. But there are exceptions. For instance, he wrote the opinion in Crawford versus Washington in 2004 that said that prosecutors cannot use testimonial statements from unavailable witnesses, even if they're reliable. He was part of the majority in a case Apprendi versus New Jersey in 2000, where the court said that it has to be the jury that finds the facts that lead to any sentence greater than the statutory maximum. Just last June, he wrote the opinion striking down a provision of the Armed Career Criminal Act is unconstitutionally vague. So I don't want to portray him as a liberal with regard to criminal justice. There were just more exceptions to his conservatism than you saw in most other areas of constitutional law. One of the ways that uh, Justice Scalia's absence is going to be felt immediately is on the cases that are currently pending before the court. In fact, uh, as we record this, the Supreme Court is expected to rule at any time on a, an emergency stay involving North Carolina's redistricting plan. It could have been that that would have been a five to four to grant the stay and allow elections to go forward under lines that a lower court had found to be an unconstitutional racial gerrymander. Might be that now we get a different result. And so there are a number of cases in which uh, Justice Scalia's absence could make a difference. Perhaps the union case uh, that is pending before the court about the power of uh, public employee unions to require fair share fees be paid by non-union members. Other cases, maybe it does not make a difference, such as in the affirmative action case, where uh, it might be that uh, it, we would end up with the same result. Um, what cases do you think are the, the ones to watch where we might see a different result? And do you expect, and just to play this out, uh, what could happen with a 4-4 tie? And I know that there's the possibility of either uh, uh, the court tying and basically sending it back, leaving the lower court in place, or perhaps setting it for re-argument. How do you think these will play out? I agree with everything you just said. Let me start with being clear that in order for a justice to participate in a decision, he or she must be on the bench at the time of the ruling. So any cases where arguments have been held and votes have been had, but the decision has not yet come down, Justice Scalia cannot participate in that decision. Now, if the vote was, without Justice Scalia, five to three, or six to two, or seven to one, or eight to, those decisions will still come out without Justice Scalia participating. But there are going to be some cases that it would have been five to four with Justice Scalia in the majority, and now it will be four to four. I think everyone believes that an example of that is what you mentioned, Friedrichs versus California Teachers Association. It was argued on Monday, January 11th, and the issue is whether non-union members continued to require to pay the share of the union dues that go to support collective bargaining. From the oral arguments in the case, it seemed clear as we five to four to rule against the unions and overturn almost 40-year-old precedent. Now it seems to be four to four. We can expect there might be other cases like that. In fact, you mentioned the possible stay in the North Carolina district case. Just a week ago, the Supreme Court, in a five to four ruling, stayed and kept the Obama rules with regard to coal-fired power plants and climate change from going into effect. Had it been even a few days later, that likely been a 4-4 split and no stay would have been issued. You're also correct in what you said. If it's a 4-4 split, the court has two choices. One is, they can say, that the lower court is affirmed without an opinion by an evenly divided court. Or they can put the case over for re-argument next year. That's happened in some high-profile case in history. Brown versus Board of Education. Roe versus Wade, Citizens United versus Federal Election Commission, where all cases argued one year 
then put over to the next. Now, the issue there for the Supreme Court is, is going to be any more likely to be a ninth justice next term than this term. You asked me for other examples. There's the contraceptive mandate case, Zubik versus Burwell, to be argued in March. There, a split exists among the circuits. Seven federal courts of appeals upheld the contraceptive mandate. One of them struck it down. If the Supreme Court affirms all of those by an evenly divided court, a split among the lower courts remains, and the same federal law means different things in varying parts of the country. That would seem real pressure for the Supreme Court to put it over for re-argument. There's also an abortion case coming up, Holmes Health Center versus Cole, involving Texas regulation of abortion. And there's an immigration case, United States versus Texas. Those two could be instances with four or four splits without Justice Scalia. Well, let me add that there's a third possibility besides the sending it back to the lower courts or putting it off for re-argument. And re-argument, I think, as we'll get to, is somewhat problematic when you don't know if there will be another justice before next February or March. Is that is certainly a, a real possibility. Uh, but the third possibility is what we saw in the first Fisher case, the first affirmative action case, which is where the court issues essentially a procedural decision that punts, that decides something but not everything, that sends it back for more fact-finding, essentially buys time. And so it might be that in the uh, contraceptive case or in some of these other cases, we might see some kind of opinion that splits the difference or puts it off for another day without actually failing to rule. And so I think, you know, that is something that we might see as well. I think it's an excellent point. And there may be cases where the Supreme Court can come to agreement to rule narrowly, perhaps, as you say, on procedural grounds, but still decide the case. But then the larger issue will be left open when there's a full bench. One other example that I thought, and I'd be interested in your reaction to it, is Evanwell versus Abbott that was argued back on December 8th as to whether or not districting has to be based on eligible voters rather than total population. Could that be another case, which would be five to four with Scalia in the majority, and now four to four? Yeah, I think I have to dissent uh, from the common wisdom on this one. I, I know that uh, Adam Liptak of the New York Times listed this as one of the cases that could be five to four that would now be four to four. I've been much more uh, optimistic uh, in the sense of thinking that the plaintiff's case here should uh, should fail, that we should leave things the way they were, which is that states could choose the denominator in terms of whether they should use total population or total voters as, as their denominator in dividing up districts. So I don't think the case was five to four before, and so I don't think it's going to be four to four now. I'd point out that Justice Scalia and I noted this on my election law blog at the time, Justice Scalia did not say a word at oral argument in the Evanwell case. And it is extremely unusual for Justice Scalia to not say a word at any oral argument. Um, uh, he was really a, uh, a, a, a force to be reckoned with and certainly the most entertaining and interesting person on the bench, whether you agreed with him or not. Uh, but what you said about trying to issue narrow opinions made me think that Chief Justice Roberts' leadership is likely to be very strongly tested here. This is a very difficult period. And uh, the question is whether he can bridge divides. He's certainly been a very competent administrator. The court gets its work done. It seems to be finally moving forward a little bit on improving its record on transparency and on making documents available. Uh, but this is a different kind of leadership. And, and I think this will be a test for him. I think it's in the high profile cases where I'm not sure what any leader can do. When you're dealing with issues like the ones that we've been alluding to, the First Amendment rights of non-union members, the contraceptive mandate, abortion, immigration, 
There are strong feelings on both sides. And the question is, can anyone find a way of bridging the difference so you don't end up with four, four splits? It's worth mentioning affirmative action separately because in that case, Justice Kagan is recused from participating. So it was eight justices to start with. Now, many thought that the court would further narrow affirmative action by a five to three margin. Will the court be willing to do that by a four to three margin? Or will they decide that's a reason for putting the case over for a larger bench? And as I understand it, a four to three ruling would still be a permissible ruling so long as the Supreme Court has a quorum then uh, the ruling goes forward. But maybe there's something psychological about the court deciding something as monumental as uh, change to affirmative action without any kind of um, uh, absolute majority of a full bench of the Supreme Court. So let me ask you this. If you were to advise President Obama, what would you tell him at this point? Well, I think that it would be uh, full steam ahead on a nomination. I think that it's the president's job to nominate for vacancies. And then it's the Senate's job to figure out what to do about that. Now, uh, we're not in a situation where there would be a filibuster of a nomination because Republicans have a majority of the Senate. The question is whether first uh, Senator Grassley, who is the chair of the Senate Judiciary Committee, would hold a hearing on any nominee, do the vetting. This process usually takes a few months to get going. And uh, assuming that a nominee does... uh, come out of committee, either with an affirmative vote or maybe put to the floor without an affirmative vote, would uh, Senator Mitch McConnell, the Senate uh, Majority Leader, hold a vote? Now, I was very surprised that just hours after the public announcement of Justice Scalia's death, uh, McConnell uh, stated that he didn't think there should be a vote. So I think, uh, and and, um, many Republicans, including Orrin Hatch, uh, who has been on the, the Judiciary Committee for years and is a very thoughtful uh, Republican leader on these, endorsed McConnell's idea of putting this away, in part as a kind of payback for what Republicans see as uh, de- the Democrats' intransigence on Republican nominees uh, in the past. And so uh, I think Obama puts forward a nominee. What Republicans do is really going to depend upon the political pressure, and especially the political pressure that would come to bear on those uh, of the 24 Republican senators who are up for re-election, those in tough races, where uh, if this becomes a salient issue, if Republicans are seen as obstructionist and not even having an up or down vote, uh, that uh, there might be pressure to change that and allow the vote to go forward. And so I think if Mitch McConnell sees that this is such a salient issue that he could lose his uh, Senate majority, then we might see uh, an up or down vote. If there is an up or down vote, just playing this out a little further, I could well see a candidate uh, narrowly be defeated, perhaps with some Republicans supporting that Obama nominee. Maybe the person gets through, but if not, I expect whoever that nominee is could well be embraced by the, uh, who will then be the Democratic nominee or presumptive front runner at, at that point in time, uh, maybe Hillary Clinton or Bernie Sanders. And this person would then be the symbol, vote for me and I will renominate this person to the court. I don't know if you have other thoughts about how this would go. I largely agree. If President Obama would ask my advice, which he won't, I would say, don't pick a conservative or a moderate conservative just to get the person through the Senate. This person is going to be on the Supreme Court for several decades. This is an opportunity that shouldn't be squandered. Every president looks for nominees that are consistent with the president's values. President Obama should do the same, looking for someone like Sonia Sotomayor or Elena Kagan, his prior two nominees who have his values. 
I think he should pick somebody of impeccable credentials. He should pick somebody who has a compelling life story. He needs to pick somebody where there's no paper trail that could be used to rally against the person. He needs to pick somebody who's admired all across the political spectrum. I think for many reasons, diversity reasons, political reasons, selecting a person of color, an African-American, Asian-American, Hispanic, could have great benefits for the court as well as for the politics situation. And it's hard to know how it will play out until we've seen the nominee. That I understand why Mitch McConnell and Orkney Hatch took that position. There are certainly some Obama nominees where they might be quite willing to have a hearing and a vote. Others will take this position. The one thing that I would add to what you said is there are a number of Republicans from swing states, Republicans like from Illinois, who are up for re-election in November. It will take four Republicans to join the Democrats to create a majority to approve the nominee. Now, at that point, can they force a hearing? Can they force a vote? What will end up happening? We can't know. So I think that the politics are going to really depend on who selected. Well, uh, and uh, I think not only the question of uh, who is selected, but the timing. I think every week that Obama waits uh, is going to make it harder because then the claim, let the next uh, election decide this, matters. And so I expect we're going to see a uh, nominee sooner rather than later, which also suggests it would be someone who has recently been vetted, uh, who's uh, either sitting on the appeals court or has a presidential appointment or, or has uh, somehow already familiar to senators and approved by senators. I, th- I think there's going to be a heavy thumb on the scale as to those uh, types of nominees. Uh, and, and there's a lot at stake. And we talked about the issues that were related to the cases that are currently before the court. But let me just mention one that's not currently before the court, but likely to come to the court in the next term or the term after, which is campaign finance. That's one of the issues that I've been following very closely. And there's a case that's working its way up from a three-judge court in Washington, D.C., involving part of the McCain-Feingold law. You remember the McCain-Feingold law passed by Congress in the early 2000s did two things. One is it limited corporate and union money. That part of the uh, uh, law has been struck down by the Supreme Court in the Citizens United case, very controversial case. But the other part involved party soft money, the amount of money that political parties can raise from large donors. That part was upheld by the Supreme Court in a case called McConnell versus Federal Election Commission. And there's now this new challenge pending the three-judge court to get that reconsidered. It's from a three-judge court, so it gets a direct appeal to the Supreme Court. It's kind of a fast ticket to the Supreme Court. So that could make it to the Supreme Court next year. And the court was divided five to four on these issues for a very long time before there was five to four against regulation. It was five to four before regulation when Justice O'Connor was on the court rather than Justice Alito. So it could be that the future of money in politics rests on uh, the uh, future next justice of the Supreme Court. And I'm wondering what other cases you see that could be coming in the next few years where we could potentially see a switch. It's virtually every area of constitutional law where the court has been five to four with Justice Scalia and the majority you could then see a change. Let me give a statistical perspective of this. Last year, the Supreme Court decided 66 cases after brief funeral argument. 19 of the 66 were decided five to four. In 14 of the 66 cases, or 14 of the 19 5-4 decisions, the court was split along ideological lines with Roberts, Scalia, 
Thomas and Alito on one side, and with Ginsburg, Breyer, Senator Kagan on the other. Well, that's 14 cases where replacing Justice Scalia with a liberal justice could make clear the liberal majority. I mentioned at the beginning the Second Amendment, District of Columbia versus Heller in 2008, the first time the court ever struck down law on the basis of the Second Amendment, was five to four with Justice Scalia writing. For abortion, the conventional wisdom is that there are four justices who want to overrule Roe, one who will vote to uphold most regulation of abortion, and four who would strike down most regulation of abortions. Justice Scalia's replacement created a solid five-justice majority to be in favor of abortion rights and reproductive freedom. My guess is the immigration issue, the president's immigration policy. There's a real chance it was going to be five to four against President Obama. A liberal justice could make it five four the other way. And maybe to end this, to put this in the larger context, I think what this is going to do is make ever more salient the Supreme Court from the November 2016 presidential election. The average age at which a justice has left the court since 1960 is 79 years old. By coincidence, that's the age at which Justice Scalia passed away. We will have three other justices who are 79 or older in 2017, the year of the next presidential election. I've said all along that I think the most important issue in the next presidential election is who's going to fill those vacancies on the Supreme Court. I think Justice Scalia's passing brings that very much to the fore. Oh, and I very much agree with that. And I think we should stop thinking of the replacement of Justice Scalia as a kind of hurricane that's coming through, but the first in a series of storms. And even if the balance shifts five to four here, if we get a Republican president uh, who appoints the next few justices, it could shift right back. And, and then there's a the whole question, which we don't have time to talk about this time, but maybe we can go back and talk about, which is stare decisis. How much should a justice who's liberal follow conservative precedent? How much should a conservative follow a liberal precedent just because of the idea that it's uh, upsetting to the law to have constant change and churn? But I think on that note, we're going to have to leave it. Uh, it's been great to have this conversation with you, and I look forward to uh, our continuing discussion of the Supreme Court nomination process. Thank you for joining us for UCI Law Talks, produced by the University of California, Irvine School of Law.